testified, and 3,000 people got saved that first day on the day of Pentecost. And so now they just began to go about their, their lives as the church. We saw at the end of chapter 2 that as the church was growing and God was adding people to them, they were continuously devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread and fellowship and prayer, all those things that comprise what the church is supposed to be and what they're supposed to do. Now we pick up with chapter 3, and it says, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, they were continuing in all of the rituals of Judaism. They hadn't said, oh, let's start a new religion. I mean, the, the Jews, to them, were the logical people for them to share with because they believe, you know, they supposedly believed the whole Old Testament, and Jesus had been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And after Jesus' resurrection, he, he talked to them about how he was the fulfillment and culmination of that. And so I think at this point, the disciples fully expected their Jewish brothers and sisters to just embrace Christianity. So they were still participating, going to synagogue, going to the temple, but uh, Peter and John were heading up there for the daily prayers, and there was a, a man who was lame from his mother's womb. We learned later he was over 40 years old. He had never walked his whole life. And they carried him up and laid him at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. And this was a common practice in those days that um, rather than uh, to have a ordinary welfare program. They made people who weren't able to work at least ask. And so you had prime spots where everyone would know them. People were in a good mood as they were coming to the temple wanting to be generous. And a guy could make a decent living doing this as a, one of the beggars outside the temple. And the fact that he was right there at the, at the beautiful gate for one thing, he had been doing this his whole life, and so you kind of were able to move up and earn the best spots, and this was a good spot to be in. But he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, and he asked them for alms, for, for a contribution. And fixing his eyes on him, along with John, Peter said, look at us. That was interesting for him to just say look at me look at us but the guy figured oh he wants he wants everyone to see how much money they're going to give me because a lot of times guys who were giving alms would really call attention to themselves when they would do it so um, he looked at him thinking he was going to get a contribution and peter said silver and gold i do not have but what i do have i give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Years ago, there was a pastor who was really gloating in his glorious building that he had built, and he said, certainly today it can't be said that silver and gold have I none. God's really blessed us. And someone standing by said, no, but it's also true that today you can't say rise up and walk. <laughs> and so, you know, they gave what they had, and what they had was the power of the Holy Spirit and a, and a sense, no doubt, from the Spirit that God was going to heal this man. 
And of course, you tell a guy to rise up and walk, he looks at you like you're nuts. And so Peter reached out and grabbed him by the hand, pulled him up on his feet. And um, he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Now this is a real technical medical term. As you remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts. And, and every time he talks about a physical state, he used medical terms of the day to describe what happened. And apparently this guy was born with bones missing in his feet so that it was impossible for him to walk. And yet, as he was pulled to his feet, this creative act of God whereby he received the bones that he hadn't had in over 40 years and he was able to walk. And so he leaped up stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So this guy, every day when they would come to the temple, there he was sitting in this prominent position, always there, the same spot, always begging, always understanding that, you know, people knew him. He had been doing this since probably he was a little kid. Now he's over 40 years old, and there he is. Um, next thing you know, he's jumping around, walking, leaping, praising God, and there was no mistaken identity. They knew this guy, and they had watched him grow up sitting there, and, you know, nobody was saying, Hey, what's up? Were you faking it all these years? You know, it was, no, everyone knew he couldn't walk, and now all of a sudden he can. And so they were just blown away by this naturally because uh, this was a miracle that you just don't see every day. A lot of times, seeing a miracle in the life of somebody that you don't really know, um, somebody can come to you and say, Yeah, it's amazing. Yesterday I was on my deathbed dying. And then God touched me and now I'm in perfectly good health. You go, well, I'd like to see x-rays. I'd like to, I mean, is there somebody who can attest that you actually were that sick? Um, but here, it was no doubt about it. They didn't have to act for ask for verification. They were amazed. And so the lame guy was hanging on to Peter and John, as you can imagine. And all the people ran together to them in the porch there on the side of the temple, which is called Solomon's Porch, and they were all greatly amazed. And when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. He's like, here's my chance for my second sermon. And he said, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why is this surprising you? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk. This shows us some things about Peter and John right away. If, if I had been used by God to do something amazing like that, I'd appreciate the attention. You know, I would think, yep, that's right. It would be hard to say, look, don't look at me like I've done some amazing thing. And so often, no matter in what small ways God uses us, it's tempting to take some of the glory to ourselves. It's tempting, and, and it's hard because 
a lot of times when someone is appreciative of what God has done through you, there is no real gracious way of, of handling that appreciation. You know, somebody goes, oh yeah, that, boy, I saw how you ministered to that person. That's just really amazing. Or, oh, that Bible study just really changed my life. Well, what can you say to that? Um, if you go, oh, it's not me, it's the Lord, they go, of course. I didn't think it was just you. I'm just letting you know that God used you. And, and so a lot of times you can have a false humility that ends up looking really goofy. And in the same way that if somebody comes up and says, that Bible study was just amazing, and as a speaker, as a pastor, you go, yeah, well, it doesn't just happen that way. I put like 30 hours into that thing, and so, you know, you better, and, and besides that, I think my message last week was even better than that one. Why are you making such a big deal about this one? All my messages are powerful, you know, and so <laughs> there's, this, there's this thing of when God uses you, it's hard not to be invested in it, and it's hard not to feel identification with it, because when we do lousy I mean, I, and I know sometimes I'll give a message, it's just subpar. I know if I had, you know, just tweaked a couple things, it could have been better. I, sometimes I have that feeling, and then people still come up and say it was great, but then I realize how discerning they are. But, <laughs> but the thing is, if they're going to criticize it, it really hurts me, but that too betrays that I'm a little too involved in this process. But Peter and John, right off the bat, they go, what are you, why are you so surprised? For one thing, I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. Why are you so surprised that he could heal a guy with bad feet? And then why are you looking at us and hanging on to us and congratulating us? Believe me, if I could do that at will, I'd head down to the hospital and do it for a whole bunch of people. So, I mean, this is just, this is freaking me out as much as it is you, but this is just God, and I don't want you guys looking to me like I've done some amazing thing. And so then he, he puts the attention on God, and he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Now check this out. Whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. You get the feeling that Peter wasn't, definitely wasn't trying to soft pedal his message at all. He was being extremely offensive. And they were just going like, wow, this is great, praise God. And he's going, yeah, praise God. The one who did this, you guys just had him killed. You were screaming, give us Barabbas. Uh, does that ring a bell? Do you remember that just a, you know, a little over a month ago? And his name, verse 16, through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know, yes, the faith which comes through him, was given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. That, that's a nice perspective, because he had every reason to be blasting these guys, and he does let them have it, but he also says, 
I totally understand because you didn't know what you were doing. And that would no doubt bring back the memory to them of seeing Jesus hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Peter's saying, God's not going to try to get even with you. God's not mad at you. I want to be really honest with you about who you are and about the fact that you're trying to have it both ways because you follow the crowd and you, and you walk in sin and you rejected Jesus Christ, but you're saying, it's awesome that a lame guy can walk now. And he's just saying, you need to bring the reality of these two experiences together and, and recognize that this should shake your faith to its core. This calls for a major adjustment. And that's what he goes on to tell them. But it was in the name of Jesus that this happened. You did it in ignorance, and so did your leaders. The leaders standing by weren't crazy about that. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Messiah would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. He said the Old Testament said that this was going to happen, and it happened. Repent, therefore, turn around, and be converted, be changed, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. He says, look, it's true, man. You guys are a mess, and you need to change. And this would be a good time to do that. But, he said, God doesn't want to judge you. There's a time of judgment that's coming, but he wants to deliver you from that. All he wants to do is give you refreshment. All he wants to do is give you a fresh start and renew you. And, you know, it seems like a lot of times when people present the gospel, they either present it in a way that's so soft that it just sounds like, hey, no big deal. Um, you know, you want to, fine. You don't, fine. And you're probably fine without it. Or they come on and really nail people about their sin. And it sounds like God's almost relishing destroying you. Where this message, he's so honest but he brings up that which God wants to do for every one of us. And I love thinking of God this way, that even as he looks at our sin, and even as he sees our failure, everything within his heart is wanting to refresh us. Everything within what he wants to do towards us is to say, let me clean you, let me, let me refresh you. You're going in the wrong direction, turn, because what there is at the end of the road that you're going to is anything but refreshing. And if you get on the right track, then what God is promising to you is the most wonderfully fresh and new and glorious future that you could possibly have. And I, and I wonder sometimes if when we talk to people about the Lord, we get that across to them. That, you know what, I know you're thirsty. As Jesus, when he stood up there in the, in the, on the steps, southern steps of the temple on the great day of the feast, and he said, 
If anyone thirsts, come unto me and drink. And that is the message of what he wants to do for us. Life doesn't treat us well. And often we find ourselves parched, we find ourselves dry, we find ourselves hungry and frustrated and blind. And he just says, I want to give you a fresh start. And the Bible tells us that his mercies are new every morning. So this is why he wants us to repent, is so that he can make things fresh. But this is also what he wants to do in all of our lives every day. When you get up tomorrow morning, God's heart for you is that you would be refreshed, that you would feel completely clean, that you would feel just absolutely loved and taken care of, and your future is absolutely secure. And that's the heart that God has for his people. But in that heart, he will be honest with you. But here's how you know it's God, because when God speaks to you about your sin, when he speaks to you about what needs to change in your life, it's like there's a load that's lifted off of you. If, if you are thinking about your sin and it just drains you, that's not what God wants to do. And if someone points out to you your failure and, and it leaves you feeling just worthless, something's missing. And the something that's missing is actually the voice of God and the heart of God. And I just so, when I have contact with people, whether they know Jesus or not, whether they want to accept him or not, whether they like me or not, I, I, I would just love for people to feel, when they leave my presence, to feel refreshed. There are some people that you can't talk to them without feeling refreshed. And there are some people that you can be as fresh as could be and you talk to them and they'll just suck it right out of you. <laughs> and I just, I wanna, I wanna represent his heart and so I wanna look at how I respond to people and yeah, I wanna be honest with them and let them know they can change. You don't have to keep doing what you're doing. But at the same time, I always want my heart to reflect that God, all God wants is to give you a fresh start. All he wants to do is love you and, and, and quench your thirst and all that. And so he says that the time's going to come when God's going to make all things right. And then he says in verse 22, for Moses truly said to the fathers, and this is in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. This isn't some new thing. He goes, Moses talked about this back in Deuteronomy. How could you have missed that? Yes, and all the prophets, from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. He says, every prophet told about this opportunity and about this Messiah. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed there in Genesis. So he says, all of this was for you. You can now have the opportunity to inherit the blessings that were promised through your father Abraham and through all the prophets. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you. 
in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Yes, he wants you to repent because he wants you to turn away from what's destroying you. God just wants to bless. And so as they spoke to the people, chapter 4, verse 1, the priests, the captain of the temple, and in particular the Sadducees, who didn't believe in resurrection, came upon them to challenge them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This was a challenge to them because Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. It was an insult to the Jewish leaders because here are these guys teaching something that kind of accosts them and calls them to account, and the leaders were not willing at this point to accept responsibility for what they had done. So they were upset, and they laid hands on them, not to pray for them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. The leaders, the religious people, they didn't believe. They, they clamped cuffs on them and locked them up. But a lot of the people who were listening were going, that makes sense. And it's really hard to argue with some guys that just made a guy who's been crippled his whole life able to walk and leap and praise God. You're going, and then so many of these people had actually seen Jesus, no doubt, after his resurrection, and they're putting two and two together and going, wow, I never did know what those verses meant in Psalms. I never knew what those verses meant in Deuteronomy. I never knew what that meant in Genesis. This kind of makes sense. And so, check it out, a lot of them believed in the number of the men only. They didn't count women and children, but no doubt they followed along, and women are much more prone to respond to the Lord than men are anyway. But there were 5,000 men who were standing around watching this, and as Peter and John are being hauled to jail, these guys are on their own repenting. And, and crying out to the Lord and, and receiving him. Pretty amazing because now you're just a couple days into the new church and you've already have well over 8,000 people, perhaps as many as 12,000 people in Jerusalem who had accepted Jesus Christ. Obviously this was a huge threat to the religious leaders. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes as well as Annas, the high priest. Caiaphas was also a high priest. John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And they put Peter and John in their midst, and they said, by what power or by what name have you done this? They wanted to really nail them down and go, you know, you guys are talking about Abraham, Moses, and all this stuff, but just come right out and say it. Whose name were you using that caused this lame man to be able to walk? And Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And it would take that to give the bold and clever response that he gave. He said to them, and by the way, this shows that, I mean, Peter was just filled with the Spirit in chapter 2, and now here we are in chapter 4, and again, he's filled with the Spirit. So it wasn't just once you're filled and that's it. Being filled with the Spirit is something that we need to do on an ongoing basis, and you're really better off not speaking on behalf of the Lord unless you are filled with the Spirit. 
Peter said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? He goes, okay, let me get this straight. You guys are upset because this poor guy who had never walked in his life is now walking, and that's why you arrested us? And you want to know how we did it? Because you'd rather have this guy still crippled than to have him walking? <laughs> Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. A clever answer that sounded like he was going to evade it. He didn't come right out and say Jesus at first. But he said, so let me get this straight. You want to hold us accountable for healing a guy. Okay, it was Jesus of Nazareth. Remember him? You killed him. Remember him? He didn't stay dead. Yeah, that's how we did this. And, and then, quoting Psalm 118, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. That was a the passage that Jesus himself had quoted concerning himself. And they said, and by the way, there isn't salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What a bold and a strong declaration. He didn't say, all roads lead to heaven. He didn't say, you guys follow Judaism and we'll follow the Christian version of it and other people can follow whatever. And if we're just sincere, then we'll all get there. You know, we all worship the same God when it comes down to it. Not at all. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one way to be saved. As Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Of course, this was offensive to them. Because at this point, if he had taught some sort of syncretism, that is, if he had taught that, yeah, we're just kind of another flavor of Judaism, and we're not trying to convert you Jews, um, we're Jews too, it's just that he has made our Jewishness so much more meaningful to us. And that would have flown. And today, that's the way a lot of people want to approach the gospel. And, and even to the point where, there are those who would say we shouldn't try to convert Jews. Others who say we shouldn't try to convert Muslims or we shouldn't try to convert anyone else who doesn't know Jesus. No, our job is to let everyone know the only way to salvation, the only way to heaven is by the name of Jesus Christ, by putting your faith in him. Now, among those who trust in Jesus, there are a great variety of people who understand exactly what that means in different ways. There are a lot of different churches and things like that. But Peter just wanted to make it really clear. Without Jesus, uh-uh. It's not going to happen. And there are pastors today who teach that Jews who try to follow the Jewish law will be saved under the old covenant. 
If Peter had believed that, they wouldn't have had a problem at all. It would have been, okay, great. Jesus is just a Jewish prophet. There's other Jewish prophets, no problem. The threat was in the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus and his followers. If it had just been, no, let's all just get along, let's all get together, they wouldn't have had a problem. But they made it clear, no, salvation only comes through his name and no other name. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they thought they could intimidate them. But they perceived also that they were uneducated and untrained men. We don't know if, uh, how they knew that, maybe just because of the calluses on their hands, or perhaps Luke edited their comments and they weren't quite as clean. Who knows? But, but they're going, wait a minute, these guys are coming off brilliant, and they're fishermen. I can tell, I know they haven't been to school because we run the school. They didn't go to seminary because we run the seminary. But man, they've got some good points here. They marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's, that's heavy. People can tell when you've been with Jesus. And they can tell when you haven't. And it's not just by what kind of a good rap you have or how much you know or anything else. There is, a, there is an obvious spiritual presence in someone who has been with Jesus. And some of the most religious people that I've ever known didn't have it. And some of the most simple and new and rough around the edges and people who are offensive that I've known obviously have it. And boy, you know, it's one thing if people marvel because, wow, look at all you know. Look at how polished you are. Look at, you've got all your arguments down. Forget that stuff. To me, I want people to be amazed because they can tell I've been with Jesus. But I only know one way to do that. They didn't teach it to me in seminary, and it doesn't come by learning enough stuff. The only way that you look like, smell like, taste like, feel like somebody who's been with Jesus is to be with Jesus, to spend time with him. And it's not, man, I'm amazed at these people because they've been hanging out with other believers so much. I look at these Christians and they all look alike and act alike and talk alike. Any cult can do that. But it's when we spend time with Jesus that we're really transformed, that there's really a difference. And then we have something to bring to each other. Don't you love getting together with someone who you can tell they've been with Jesus? And at the same time, how many excuses do we have for not being with Jesus? And all of those activities that we involve ourselves in, and all the stresses of life, and all the busyness that we get sucked into, and all of the appeals to do this and this and this, and how we completely cram our lives full of activity, thinking somehow that it's going to count for something. And often what it does is just keep us from being with Jesus. And people maybe marveled at you because they go, how do you do everything you do? 
Or they may be marveled at you because, man, you look like you're falling apart, but here you are still here. Man, for a good part of my life, I think that's what amazed people was that I was always there. I was there before anyone. I left after anyone. I, I remember the night when I had just had surgery on my nose. My entire nose was packed with gauze and it just looked like a baseball on my face. And we had communion that night. I think it might have even been the New Year's Eve service. And I came walking down the aisle, and Pastor Chuck looked up and saw me, two black eyes, nose packed with gauze, and there I am. And he just looked and just shook his head like this. And I was proud of that, I'll be honest with you. I thought, I bet he's really impressed. Um, and I'm sure he was. I'm sure a lot of people were. And I, and, but nowadays, when people just talk to me about, I'm amazed at how much you do, um, it doesn't mean what it used to mean to me. Because I'm tired of just trying to fill my life, hanging so many hooks in the water that I'm hoping one of them gets a bite. Um, I would rather have people be amazed in a small way at something that has to do with being with Jesus and hearing from Him, rather than try to make up for it in volume. I was writing to someone today, an email, and, and uh, I was reminded of, uh, there's, a, there's an old saying, and uh, C.S. Lewis said it, um, there are several other people who have, Carl Jung borrowed it, um, I don't know who originally came up with it. I've also seen several other people say it, but the saying is this, busyness is not the tool of the devil. Busyness is the devil. And I'm convinced that busyness is the most damaging thing that we can do to ourselves. And it, it reflects an insecurity of not being okay with knowing what God wants us to do. So if I just do a whole bunch of stuff, I'm sure something will stick. And, you know, you never got that feeling about Jesus, nor do you get that feeling about the disciples. And as a result, when people heard them, even the non-Christians, even the religious leaders, who they wouldn't go, wow, you knew more than I do. No, he, they knew much more than the disciples but they could tell that the disciples had been with Jesus and they marveled. And I, there's only one way I know of to get that and that is to be with Jesus. And so what a great witness, realizing they had been with Jesus. And then seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. <laughs> How could they complain? At this point, the lame guy comes walking up now, they can't say, I don't think he was really healed. We want to examine him. This was all in his head. It's interesting that today there are all kinds of people who would argue that miracles don't happen. But these guys who had their entire career at stake, if there was any way they could have disproven this healing, all of a sudden, 5,000 people now aren't saved. And the church is discredited and the disciples look foolish but there was absolutely nothing they could do to disprove it. It was just so clear and so obvious. The enemies of the early church never tried to disprove the resurrection. 
They never tried to disprove the miracles of Jesus. It's, it only took another 1,500 years or so to where German you know, theologians started doubting whether or not miracles really happened. <laughs> These guys had way more to gain, and they didn't even try that. The guy's standing right there. They couldn't say anything. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. They go, go stand out in the lobby. What shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all. There's no question about it. We can't cover that up. Everybody who lives in Jerusalem saw it, and we can't deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let's severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said to them, well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They go, let's see, you're telling us not to speak in the name of Jesus and God's telling us to do it. Who do you think God would want us to obey. And this is so important for us to spend time with Jesus so we hear from God. Not to have people tell us what God wants us to know. Not to have people make decisions for us and, and guide us. Not to take our cues from whatever tradition or history has done or anything else, but to hear from God and to do what He says. And there's something that you have to understand. Sometimes God may tell you to do something that's unusual, and sometimes he may tell you to do something that's going to cost you. And they understood it, but they said, sorry, we're just going to do what, what God says. And uh, all, all we're going to do is keep telling people what we saw and what we heard. That's what a witness is. Hey, all I know is this is what happened. I saw Jesus die. I saw him alive. I've seen this lame guy walking. I mean, you're going to tell me I can't say that? I'm just telling what happened. And uh, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. The people all around were just celebrating, man, this guy's walking, so they couldn't really do much, so they let him go. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own, uh, their own people, their own companions, and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, and then quoting Psalm 2, why did the nations rage? And the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They said, well, guys, you know, good news and bad news, they let us go. But they said we can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore, and they threatened to do terrible things to us if we do. And together they just went, praise God, because even that had been prophesied, that, that 
you'll know you're right by the fact that people won't always accept it and some people will attack you. It's one of the greatest confirmations of being right is being attacked. And so they quoted the second psalm there where it says, why do the heathen rage? The people imagine the vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And what he didn't quote was what the next verse says, but he that sits in the heavens will laugh. He will have them in derision. God is just amused by people who think that they can stop him and stop his people. You couldn't stop this. And, and he says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. <laughs> they said, God, you know what it was like because you were attacked. You were accosted. They were setting themselves against you and now they're setting themselves against us. Verse 28 is, a, is an amazing verse because he's saying this is what Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers, and the Jewish leaders all did, but to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. They had an awareness that even though people are held responsible for their choices, yet somehow God's sovereignty works through all of that. And, and they said that, you know, hey, they did that, and it totally fit in with what you had planned even before that. That's, a, that's an important concept theologically. And it, it's, it's some of the truths that cause it not to be a slam dunk sort of thing when you're deciding, you know, Calvinism or Arminianism. Hey, a verse like this, if you just took it by itself, it almost sounds like that God just did it and the people had no say in it at all. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that that's not the case. And reasonably, since they were held accountable, they clearly chose to do it and yet, in some weird mystical way, God works not just responding to what people do. Openness theology says that God doesn't know the future, but he kind of determines it by doing the best he can to fix what people do and bringing about his ultimate good. Um, that's not what this says. This says, no, that was God's plan before anything could happen. Well, how could it be his plan? Well, for one thing, God knows everything. He knows the future. So his response or whatever, it, he's not bound by time. So um, this, is a, this is an area whereby God is just much, more, much greater and much more complex than what we can even conceive of. And so for me, my choice is just to believe everything that the Bible says about God. I don't want to like make excuses and twist him around and water down what he says. So that's why, you know, in a passage like in the Gospels where Jesus said that he wanted to gather them, but they wouldn't and therefore he couldn't. I believe that. I believe this too. That's why I'm just not a real good Calvinist or a real good Arminian. Um, I just believe God's so big that 
Anybody who tries to completely explain him is just going to shrink him down to size. And I'd rather just enjoy knowing that he has all this stuff handled and put together. And when I get to heaven, if he says, you should have been a Calvinist, okay, fine. But God, there were verses in there that didn't fit with that. Or if he says, you should have been an Arminian, okay, but Lord, what, what do you think I would make out of this verse? So um, I'm okay with it. They knew that God's hand was there. And it does provide me with great comfort to know that God is working through everything and that he has a plan that goes way beyond mine. And he has a plan that's much bigger than my sin and my failure and my frailty and that when it's all said and done, it's all going to look like God's plan. So I'm, I'm okay with that. I hope you are too. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal and signs and wonders will be done in the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Interesting that after they stood up to all the religious leaders and right to their face called them out for having killed Jesus, the Messiah, and then when they were ordered not to speak, they boldly spoke up, and said, hey, we're going to obey God, not you. You can threaten all you want. We're going to tell people what we know. And then they leave, and it's interesting that they went and got with their, with their friends, and the, the focus of their prayer was, God, give us boldness. <laughs> I don't know if they did it initially on adrenaline, or if it was just that when you exercise boldness, it gets you into situations whereby you're going to need even more. And when God gives you boldness, you realize that boldness didn't come from me because I'm a brave person. That boldness came from him. And God, I want to continue having that kind of boldness. And so that was their prayer. Uh, just curious, uh, probably no one in here has been called before authorities and ordered with great penalty to never say anything about Jesus again. Maybe some of you have been in a job situation or something or with a relative where it's like, I don't ever want to hear you say anything about Jesus again. And, and you know, so I, I don't know all of your experiences, but most of us haven't faced this kind of a challenge to this degree, certainly. And yet, when was the last time you prayed for boldness? You know, they were bold, and they prayed for boldness. And for us, we're so often, you know, just mealy-mouthed and nervous and trying to keep to ourselves and not wanting to say anything that's offensive or challenging or anything else. And even in dealing with other people who are Christians, we're, we can be so cowardly. And yet, why? Partly we aren't praying for boldness. They understood the need to pray for boldness. And, and I think this is a great reminder for us, and I would challenge you um, sometime tonight before you go to bed, just 
Get along with the Lord and just say, God, would you give me boldness? I want to be bold. Not to be offensive. It's always as the Spirit leads and as the Spirit fills us, but we could use more bold love. Sometimes the boldness might just mean telling somebody that you're praying for them or coming up to someone that you don't know at church and just going, hey, I'm really glad you're here tonight. Can I pray for you for anything? Or, you know, boldness isn't beating people over the head. Boldness is just not keeping to yourself. Boldness is sharing what you've seen and heard. And so they prayed for that, and I think that's a good thing to be prayed for. And then again, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this time, when they were filled with the Spirit, they, they didn't uh, you know, speak in tongues as far as we know, but they spoke the Word of God with boldness. So if you want to speak the Word of God with boldness, you need to be filled with the Spirit. You see this running through the book of Acts. And the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now this wasn't completely, absolutely true because we find out later some of these people still had things that they owned. But it was, it was really an early kind of experience with communism, like in the end of Acts chapter 2. There were, so, remember, 8,000 people or more had gotten saved. Many of them, most of them in Acts chapter 2, were from other places. So now they're hanging around wondering what's going on. They don't have jobs. They don't have ways to support themselves. And so it was a natural thing that everybody would take people into their house. People, if they had something extra, they would share it with others. It was just what they, what they did. Um, we're going to see problems that come, came about because of that as well. This, isn't, this was never commanded. This is just what they were doing at the time. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I love that. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas, by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement. Later he traveled with Paul. He was a Levite from Cyprus. He had some land and he sold it and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they were just sharing. They were giving. There was a generosity and because of it, no one was in need. Everyone had everything that they wanted. No fundraisers, no, you know, hand wringing, no, you know, um, man, if you guys don't give more offering, then uh, God's going to kill me or whatever. It was just a natural thing that they all began to share. God has blessed His people always in huge abundance. And if people would do what God told them to do, this would be our experience. No one would go without. Everything would be taken care of. In the Old Testament, they were commanded to tithe 10% of all their increase to bring into the storehouses to do the Lord's work. I don't believe that the New Testament commands that kind of tithe, but I do think that that should at least be a bare minimum. But 
all the, all the um, estimates that they've given by estimating incomes and looking at church revenue and ministry revenue and things like that, most estimates say that the average evangelical church, um, the people tithe about 1% of their income. And they say that if, if, if everyone who was a Christian just tithed what was the Old Testament minimum and gave 10%, Every missionary would be completely supported without raising money. Every church would be able to pay off their mortgage. Everything that they needed to do, salary, everything would be taken care of if people would just do what they're supposed to do. But they don't, so we'll be begging. No, not really. <laughs> but uh, so this is just what they were doing, and they were giving, and it's in that context. And Barnabas was really appreciated because he sold a piece of real estate and he just came and gave it to the apostles and said, here, here's the money. And so a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, they sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife knew about it too. And they brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. They were copying Barnabas. They liked the, the appreciation and respect that people had for Barnabas, so they're like, we'll do that too. So they sold a piece of land, and they brought part of the money in and acted like they were giving all of it. Now, they didn't have to give any of it. Nobody told them they had to give, but they were acting like they were giving when they weren't, and that was a serious thing. So they did it, laid it at the apostles' feet, and God just wanted to deal with hypocrisy in a very serious way right off the bat in the church. And so Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? See, he was lying to the disciples, but because they were the representatives of the church, he said, if you're a phony with the leaders of the church, then you are actually lying to the Holy Spirit because they are working on behalf of the Holy Spirit, doing what they're called to do. And, and so then, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, he lied to men, and Peter made that equivalent to lying to the Holy Spirit. And now he says, you lied to God. So this is a very clear indication that the Holy Spirit is God. And one of the scriptures that you want to point out to people who deny the Trinity. And so then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. <laughs> Imagine if that happened regularly. <laughs> we said, okay, everybody stand. And everyone who has been a phony this week, or everyone who hasn't given what they should have, be ready, because you're going to crumble on the floor and die. <laughs> Tough. So he, 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 he croaked right there, and great fear came upon all those who heard these things, as you can imagine. And so a bunch of young guys wrapped his body up in a body bag and carried him out and buried him. And while they were burying him, his wife came along three hours later. No doubt she had been shopping with the money they were supposed to give to the church. And uh, so she didn't know what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yep, that was the amount. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together, you 
you collaborated with your husband to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and go, not again, and <laughs> carried her out and buried her there by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Can't imagine a better incentive for people to be sincere <laughs> and maybe to give too <laughs> generously. Just understand this. God feels, God doesn't change. So God feels the same way about hypocrisy and phoniness and greed. He feels the same way now as he did then. He did that to establish how he feels about it, but uh, he hasn't changed. It's just that his grace um, causes us not to, every time we lie to Christians, lie to leaders, lie to the Holy Spirit, we don't just die right on the spot. And I'm among many of us who would be dead today if, if he still did it. But it does humble me and get my attention to recognize that, you know, if I'm fake, he feels the same way about it as he did with Ananias and Sapphira, and that, that should get our attention. And if I'm not giving as I should, if, I, if I'm not sharing and I'm being selfish, um, that's how God feels about that. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them. <laughs> there weren't a lot of seekers attending church <laughs> at the time, but the people esteemed them highly. They go, I respect you guys, but uh, I don't think I want to come visit right now. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. There were those, you had to either really believe or not at all. There were no people on the fence, multitudes of men and women, so that they brought the sick out from the streets and laid them on beds and couches, and that even the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. When the church was honest and had integrity, there were these amazing miracles that were happening that flowed forth from that. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, and it was the Sadducees who were the predominant party by that time, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. They were sick of these guys out there gaining so many converts. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I mean, the angel just came and goes, no, just go preach in the temple. And I, I would have felt like, wait a minute, I mean... Those were the guys that threw us in jail. Are they not going to notice? But what do you say to an angel who's standing there letting you out of jail? And so when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So they don't know they're out there preaching in the courtyard of the temple they wanted to go interrogate them some more and punish them. 
And they went and sent for them, and they weren't there. The officers came, didn't find them in the prison. They returned and reported and said, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, they weren't there. Now when the high priest and captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. I wonder where these guys went. So one came and told them, uh, those guys you're looking for, you put them in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. So the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And indeed, to bring this man's blood on us, you're making us look bad. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Keep that in mind always. Obey God rather than men. It's why when people come to me and they want me to tell them what to do with a life decision, I don't tell them what to do. I just say, you know what? You need to be closer to God than you've ever been before, and you do what God is telling you to do. Now people go, but wait a minute. I mean, what if they, people, all kinds of people think that things are God speaking to them, and it's not even God, and I don't care. Because I would rather have someone do something stupid but feel that they're doing what God wants them to do than to have them do something that's correct but do it for the wrong reason because I convinced them to do it. So, you know, the best thing we can tell anyone is you do what God is showing you to do. And don't be in the Holy Spirit business. Don't be in the business of telling people what to do. Tell them what the scriptures say and say you'll pray for them, but you just tell them, bottom line, whatever God tells you to do, do that. Can you trust the Holy Spirit to be able to speak to people in a more convincing way than what you can do? I mean, a lot of times I've told people what to do and they didn't do it anyway. So so I would rather just take myself out of the equation. Let me pray with you that God will tell you to do what he wants you to do. And... This is an important principle to learn. So he said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They go, we're going to obey God. You guys killed him and he didn't stay dead. We're going to just tell people what we saw, just like they said before. Now, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. And then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Gamaliel was the man who was the teacher of Paul before he was Paul, when his name was Saul. Remember, when he was bragging about all that he had before he had come to Christ and everything that he had let go of, he said that he was taught by Gamaliel. So Gamaliel was a well-respected Pharisee at the time, and he said, let me talk to you guys alone. And he began to talk to them, and he said, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves, pay attention, 
what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Basically, what Gamaliel is saying is, we've had all kinds of guys who were very charismatic, who gathered a lot of people to themselves. People got all worked up about it, and then they died. Their people get over it. And so he goes, let's not make a big deal about this. Now I say to you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Great advice. And something good for us to remember, too, when we feel like going on the attack against people or against churches or movements or whatever, to, to look at it from the standpoint of, you know what? If this, is of God, if this isn't of God, it's not going to last. If it is of God... I don't want to be fighting against God. Now, throughout all generations, throughout all church history, there are different movements that, you know, some of them turned out in retrospect to be a bunch of baloney, and some of them turned out to be powerful works of the Spirit. But at the time of the movement, nobody was quite sure, and everyone was wondering. Back in the 60s and the early 70s when the Jesus movement happened, the predominant number of Christian leaders said, oh, that's terrible, that can't be of God. Rock music is of the devil. And it looks kind of stupid now where you go to the most conservative Baptist church in the country and they got drums and bass and guitar and everything. Back then it was like the only instrument God loves is the organ. Well, over time, people have realized that was dumb. On the other hand, there have been all kinds of fads that have come along that just died out. The shepherding movement, pretty much dead today. It was huge. There are a few little groups. You know, a few years ago, people were getting really worked up about the emerging church and just focused and obsessed. Oh, the dangers of the emerging church. But, you know, what happened? The emerging church is pretty much dead today. It's not, it's not a, you know, growing concern. It's not, and, and a lot of times when you see something that's, that's different and you're not sure about it, why oppose it? Just let God do his work. Time will tell. You see someone who's, you know, excited about the Lord and trying to do something, they have some idea. Somebody comes up and they go, hey, I'm starting this ministry. You listen and go, I don't know, this seems like a dumb idea. But you don't ever be the one to tell somebody that. Let them learn, because even if it fails, they'll learn something from it. But God might be in it, because God is in a lot of really crazy-sounding ideas. And so whenever, you know, a new program comes up, a new thing comes up, and I, you know, and, and I, I know that there were people in our church who, when I really started pushing home fellowships and I canceled Wednesday nights, there were some people who were just in an outrage. You're turning away from the Word of God and things like that, I heard. But most people, and I thank God, most people in the church we're either excited about it, go, wow, if God's leading you to do this, this is great, 
Or they said, yeah, we'll see. If God's in it, it'll work out. If not, fine. But I don't want to oppose God and what he might be doing. And Gamaliel gives this advice, and it's good for, I think, all of us to follow. And so uh, he, gave, he, he made his pitch, and uh, they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beat them, just for good measure, that's kind of funny. Yeah, I agree with you, so let's just hit them a few times. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Wow, these disciples, they were celebrating going, it's so cool because we're now getting persecuted in the name of Jesus. We understand we're connecting with him. When he was being beaten, we were hiding. Now we're speaking up with boldness and we're getting beaten, just like our master. And they, they were actually celebrating this. And daily in the temple and in every house, they met in the temple, they met in homes as well, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Wow, can you imagine being there in those days and being a part of that? Nobody really knew much. There were no books to speak of or anything. It was just relying on the Spirit and, and playing it one day at a time and seeing what God led them to do and having this sense of what we're doing is really special. It's really important. And it's, it's no different for us. God wants to do greater things in our lives and in us and through us than he even did through them because we have tools to reach a lot more people. We have technology that they didn't have. We have the scriptures that they didn't have. And so for us as well, we need to pray for boldness and for opportunity to be able to just share with people the love of God to let them know how much he cares for them and to, to tell them our story, what's happened to us. And uh, may God strengthen us to do just that. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word and for Luke recording all these details that give us a little picture of what life was like in the first century for Christians and how they managed to speak boldly and uncompromisingly, and yet declaring your grace and your love and your goodness, living lives of integrity and accountability, and just telling people what's happened to them, what they've seen and heard. Lord, help us to be those who spend time with you and tell people about what we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.